Good evening, my friends. Thank you for being with me. I am so thankful. We are continuing our study in Reformation and Restoration, the difference between the two, and it is a very big difference. We need to recognize that. We also need to recognize that the Restoration Movement did not start with the Reformation Movement. The Restoration Movement has been a part of the church history since its very inception, because to restore is to go back to the Apostles' doctrines. You do not get out of Acts chapter 2 without referencing the idea that that's what they were doing in the first century. The church was trying to stay with the apostles' doctrines. The apostles' doctrines, of course, are rooted in the Holy Spirit's inspiration, the message that comes to the apostles that they uh, eventually write down and becomes our New Testament. As we're journeying towards the end of this 16-week semester, I, uh, I want to conclude in, in a manner of review, which will be next time, but uh, before we go there, I want to present some material that I think is perhaps the most important material that we'll cover the entire semester, and that is this, the urgency of evangelism. I'm absolutely convinced that Catholicism and Calvinism or the Reformation movement has completely undermined the real value of evangelism, the purity of evangelism, the need for evangelism, and certainly the urgency for evangelism. So that's where we're going to go this evening. As you know, I always try to provide five questions so that those who are part of the Restoration restoration uh, School of Biblical Studies, you can have these questions so that you can uh, work through it on your own and you can be taking notes as I go through the lesson. If you're studying on your own, God bless you. Look up those passages and allow that to continue to guide you into an appreciation of the authority of God's words not Sonny Childs' words. Reformation and restoration. Tonight, the urgency of evangelism. As you know, I've been trying to use this particular slide the last several lessons because I want to establish in your heart the importance, the very biblical importance of the restoration movement to restore New Testament Christianity. You might recall several weeks ago I started presenting a bunch of passages each time that actually reference this idea of restoring, going back to that which is inspired uh, of the Holy Spirit. Well, Matthew 28, we're going to reference Matthew 28 throughout the the lesson this evening, but Matthew chapter 28, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded. Our goal is to teach what God has presented. Jeremiah 6.16 tells us we need to seek out the ancient paths. Uh, you go elsewhere in the Old Testament and you're going to find that God is referred to as, uh, as the, the ancient of days. And so there's nothing more important than for you and I to return to the ancient paths. Do not buy into modern religiosity that would suggest to you that somehow the gospel has to be tweaked or has become somewhat outdated. The pattern of the New Testament church is not to be observed because that was just all cultural stuff. I find this to be even prevalent within some of our Christian colleges that claim to be part of the Restoration Movement. This liberal concept that uh, we've got to view every context through a cultural uh, filter, meaning that if that cultural filter would suggest that it only has a cultural application to that particular time zone, then there's nothing left for you and I, and we can just dismiss that. I I didn't word that very well, but Titus chapter 2, verse 5, teaching uh, older women should teach younger women how to be homemakers, etc., etc. I've argued with many, even within our own fellowship, who would suggest that's all cultural stuff. Back in the day, women needed to be homemakers. We don't have to have that as a priority today. Hogwash 
you need to get back to appreciating the pattern of God from the beginning of time. Those are some cultural settings that, by the way, are humanly cultural, and they never go away. And we got to be very, very careful how we deal with that. And that's a whole other lesson. But uh, you, you see the yellow arrows, arrows there below me uh, pointing to how we need to get back to the purity of the Lord's church. R restoring the New Testament pattern is most definitely something that God wants us to do, has designed for the church to be a part of. Let's see if I can get that out of the way just slightly. You can still see me, which you know is very important. <laughs> oh, dear. This is a really, really important slide. Uh, it sets up not just what I'm going to say here, but it, it, it sets up the really the entire semester. Maybe not sets up. It, it helps us to culminate the material of this particular semester, the urgency of evangelism. You'll notice, uh, let, let me go back and show you the previous slide. This is the same chart, except I've replaced the words in, in the black arrows and the, and the white arrows. Let me go back and show you the previous slide, and you'll see what I'm saying. All right, you see there, you got the Lord's Church at the bottom. You've got the apostasy, Catholicism, Ref and Reformation movement in the black. All right, but now you notice I replaced those words because I think that there's a theme that needs to be born out here, an application that needs to be shared that is huge, I believe, to the Christian movement today. As the apostasy began, as all apostasies do, there's going to be a real emphasis on the human viewpoint what mankind wants. Catholicism became the organized organism, if you will, of that apostasy. It just it, it took on uh, the corporate nature of that apostasy. And eventually is going to give birth to the Reformation movement. Both of these things are highly rooted, as I've proven on several occasions prior, highly rooted in the doctrines of men, which Jesus himself condemns and says that the doctrines of men lead simply to vain worship. But you'll notice that the prime directive of humanity always seems to lead to this idea of humanitarianism, taking care of the physical needs of people. It seems like that the church always kind of defaults back to that. It defaults to that idea, and it's rather lazy in nature. I'm not suggesting it's not a part of the process, but it's rather lazy in nature because it doesn't really, it doesn't call us to the deep spiritual journey with God. It just takes care of our physical needs. And so we feed the hungry, we have our soup kitchens, we, we build big hospitals, you know, whatever. And, and in the process, we, we claim a religiosity that is taking us to the, the pinnacle of holiness when it's not really at all. It's it maybe the opening steps that one would take as they're trying to get to the greater goal. But notice, if you will, let's see if I can point to it way over here, right? <laughs> it is so hard to do this because of my hand. Or because everything's backwards. There we go, right there. <laughs> uh, physical wellness is not the good news of God. Physical wellness is that is that you know health and wealth doctrine that you you and I can name names and you you would recognize them immediately. That uh, if you're a Christian, you're going to get wealthy. If you're a Christian, good things are going to come your way, physically speaking. No, I mean. I don't even know where that nonsense comes from, other than from just a lazy hermeneutics. You're trying to interpret Scripture through what you want it to say. I mean, you think about it. Go back and notice any of God's men who were truly passionately His are going to find a majority of their life in suffering, <laughs> rejection, 
many of them are going to be put to death for the cause of Christ, and they're not going to get rich. It's one of the things I have been preaching recently with regards to uh, home church and, and the idea that, you know, we build these massive buildings and we pave the parking lot, we've got the big marquee, we've got the, the fancy pews, we got the big screen televisions, we got the big stage at the front and all that, and then it sits empty. It, it echoes silence for the majority of the week. How, you know, they, what kind of, that can't be good stewardship. But here's the point I've been making. You know, the apostles of the first century were like, really proficient at fundraising. When there was the famine down south, you remember what happened with Paul and he's up in the, up in the northern area and he's raising funds to take it down to the church, etc. Go back to even the story of Ananias and Sapphira in, in uh, Acts chapter 5. It's, uh, the apostles were really good at raising funds. But there is not a single hint in Scripture, not once, not a single hint in all the New Testament that the apostles attempted to raise money to build a building so that it would sit empty for the majority of the week. It just didn't happen. They met at the riverside. They, 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 they met in their homes primarily. They met in places of that, but they did not invest. In, they didn't trap God's money in such a way that it would not be used for that which is most important. But see, all of that comes out of this viewpoint of humanitarianism. That if we have a comfortable place, take care of our little bottoms, we take care of the human aspect, the physical side of things, that it will eventually kind of flow over into evangelism. So if they build it, if we build it, they will come concept. Nonsense. No, it doesn't work. Look over your shoulder. Look presently at the situation in the church primarily today in America, and it doesn't work. If you want to build the church, you build the core values of the church, which, by the way, are rooted within the home. But back to our little graphic here. Man's prime directive, it seems, always center upon taking care of the physical needs. God's prime directive, although, however, is evangelism, always has been. Matthew chapter 28, verses 18 through 20, which we'll see here in just a moment again. Physical well-being is not the good news of God. Physical well-being may be a stepping stone taking care of the needs of people so that we can get to spiritual well-being or get to the gospel. But too many ministries have the dominant part of their budget in things that are not eternally valuable. And that needs to change because it takes the urgency out of evangelism. Now, I'd like to share with you how I believe this all came about. It largely is rooted within the Reformation movement, largely Calvinism. I once had a Calvinist tell me this right here, this nonsensical, it's not a direct quote, but it's it's as close as I can and put, he, he, he didn't communicate very well, and so he had all kind of rambling going on in between, but this is a summation, basically, of what he said. Since we cannot know for sure who is saved or who's the elect, we go about doing good to everybody so that the lost can at least have some joy in this life. <laughs> In other words, the Calvinists, and they, you know, of course they'll not admit this, but you think about how perverse their, their conclusions are. God allows many, most folks, according to the words of Jesus, because few there be that find it, God creates most folks for the purpose of just playing with them, giving them false hope, because they're not going to heaven. There ain't no chance in the world they're going to ever be part of the eternal bliss. They're all going to hell. So God makes a majority of people, and before they ever get started, he knows and he, he, he predestines, you ain't got a chance. We need to do a study on predestination. Maybe we'll do that in, in the future. But 
recognizing that God determines his predestination. He determines that upon the choices that he already knows you're going to make because he's not bound by time. But anyway, you look at this particular damnable quote here. The idea is just do good to everybody because at least that way, those who have been pre-chosen by God, not to even have a, uh, a snowball's chance in hell, those folks at least they'll have a moment of joy, a moment of bliss. Doesn't that, you can see, kind of see how that leads to some of the conclusions of Gnosticism in the first century or towards the end of, or towards the beginning of the second century. The, the, the idea is that uh, your flesh doesn't matter. And so just kind of enjoy yourself because the flesh isn't really. And so it led to all kinds of perversions. And in the process, you found Christianity struggling, suffering. John himself writes about some of these things even before the end of the first century. But let's get back to that quote. So we do good just because, you know, you never know. We don't know who's going to be saved and who's not going to be saved. So let's do good to everybody. Humanitarianism. And at least try to give them a physical comfort while they're here. Humanitarianism. The only evidence a reformer can actually offer of his salvation is God's favor. They, they can't point to any steps of obedience that they have taken because that would suggest that they had some level of input or some level of influence with the, within their salvation process. That They can't suggest that they chose to reach out and seek God, even though that's exactly what Acts chapter 17, 26 and 27 says we were designed to do. No, they can't do that. And so they can't offer any evidence of salvation other than God's favor, which leads to the idea, the health and wealth, that if I'm doing well, health, if I'm doing well, wealth, that I, I obviously am elected, which then obviously leads to humanitarianism, because what we need to do is make sure that a lot of people have the good things happening in life, physically speaking, because that then shows that they are part of the elect. And it all roots itself in this idea that we can't really know who's saved and who is not. 1 John 5 and 13. I write these things to you, believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. Calvinism, the Reformation movement, is so bent on honoring itself, the human nature, the doctrines of men, that they actually ignore passages just like this one. The Bible says you can know. The Holy Spirit inspired John to say, it is possible for us to know. So if it's possible for us to know that we're saved, it's possible for us to know that we're not saved. And if that is possible, then you can begin to see how the urgency of evangelism takes on a new dynamic. That we're not just out here trying to make everybody feel good, physically speaking, just in case you're not part of the elect, so you can have a moment of, of, of good things because you're damned and ready going to hell anyhow, and I can't help that, but I can at least give you a, a moment of bliss in the physical realm. Now, it's all about the spiritual realm. It's all about the spiritual values. I want you to notice Matthew 28, as we've alluded to it uh, many times throughout this series, because it's like our prime directive. Uh, and Jesus came to them and said, all authorities in heaven and earth have been given to me. So it, not the Pope, not the priest, not the preacher, not the pastor. It's been given to Jesus. And But then he goes on to say, or give three assignments. And they are summarized in this way, verse 19. Go, therefore, and one, make disciples. Two, 
baptize those disciples. Three, <clears throat> down there, teach those disciples to observe everything I have commanded you. Not the Pope, not the priest, not the pastor, not the preacher, what Jesus has commanded. So there's three elements, three assignments that is part of the prime directive, that's part of the Great Commission. Make disciples, baptize those disciples, and then teach those disciples what Jesus has taught. But the Reformation movement, specifically Calvinism, undermines the authority of all three of those things. Think about that. Make disciples. Oh, they make disciples, but they're not the disciples of Christ. They're disciples of the Reformation leaders. I can't tell you the number of times I've debated a, a Calvinist when they want to refer me to some YouTube video or, or they, they want to refer me to some quote that some man has said you know, Spurgeon or, you know, whatever, or Calvin, you know, and they, they, they got these quotes about all these men, some of them who are still uh, alive even today, one of which, uh, a big name preacher who suggests that babies are evil. Uh, but they want to they quote these men. So yeah, they're making disciples, but it's a lot like what Paul said to the Ephesian elders in Acts chapter 20. He said, I know that when I go, so they're the, that their wolves are going to enter in among you. It's from your own number. Some of you folks are going to try to draw folks out away after yourselves. Oh, they make disciples in Reformationism, but the disciples are disciples of men, and they filter everything that Jesus says through men, the tulip, baptizing them. We're going to spend a significant amount of time here in a moment talking about that one, so I'm not going to stop here uh, for, for too long, except to say, again, you see how Reformationism has completely undermined the significance of baptism. I mean, they'll stand on their head, twist themselves into a spiritual pretzel, a hermeneutic uh, uh, gymnastics, in order to avoid saying baptism is what the Bible says baptism is, the very point at which you meet Jesus for the salvation of your soul. And then teaching them to deserve everything that I've commanded you is a lot like number one. Sure, they teach, but they don't teach that Jesus is primary. They teach that the viewpoint of mankind is primary, and you got to filter everything that Jesus says through the viewpoint of mankind. So you can see how the Reformation movement completely undermines the authority of all three of these. Seek and save the lost becomes keep them comfortable until God gets around to telling us who's elected and who's rejected. That's humanitarianism. And too many, even within our own fellowship, are so dominated by humanitarianism that they have totally neglected evangelism, the urgency of evangelism. <clears throat> well, I want to come to that concept of baptize, baptizing them, because you see again up there at the top, Matthew 28, 18 through 20, part of that passage says, verse 19 specifically, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them. That is very central to evangelism. Now, you're not going to hear that from the Reformation movement because according to the Reformation movement, they're going to say anything but baptism. You can't go with baptism because if you suggest that baptism is essential for one's salvation, then you're suggesting that we have some part to play in the salvation process. Reformers have especially damaged the teachings about baptism. Ironically, the Baptist church, Baptist church, has been some of the worst at undermining the real significance of the definition, the biblical definition of what baptism is all about. But I need you to know this right here. Since before the church began, long before the church began, baptism was recognized as the very moment that a person began a new life. 
As I said, baptism predates the church. It didn't start when Jesus came on the scene and he invented this idea of let's go dunk people in water. You know that John the Baptist was preaching baptism long before Jesus ever came on the scene. And there were folks dealing with teaching baptism long before John the Baptist came on the scene because baptism was a process that proselytes would go through. A proselyte is an individual who's a Gentile but wants to become a Jew. He wants to give his life to the values of, of Judaism. He wants to be, become part of the, of the chosen people. And so there are several things that he did. Circumcision, if he's a man, uh, would be one of them. But another would be baptism. And baptism was always recognized as the very moment at which a person goes into this, to the bathtub, if you will, and is cleansed of their past to resurrect into a new life. It was always viewed as the very point at which a person began a new life, until the Reformation movement came along. And I guess probably even before that with the perversion of Catholicism. Until mankind got a hold of it and it decided that they wanted to tweak baptism into something less than it was, baptism was always something that represented the very moment at which a person began a new existence. I'm told that some folks who would come into Judaism through the proselyte process and were baptized, uh, that sometimes their, their Gentile families would actually so desert them, so turn their back on them, that they'd actually conduct a funeral, uh, suggesting that my son or my daughter, that they, daughter, they have given themselves over to that, that, that series of doctrines. They are no longer part of our family. They're dead to us, which is kind of interesting that, it would be the response of the world to the process of baptism because that's exactly what baptism does. It takes you from that relationship into the relationship with God. It was always viewed that way until mankind decided they wanted to make baptism something less than it was. Now, let me take you to the words of the Holy Spirit. I want you to see, I think i got three or four passages here. Romans 6, 3, and 4. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized, watch it, into Christ... So what does baptism do? Let the Holy Spirit tell you. Baptized into Christ. Uh, Jesus, we're baptized into his death. So what does baptism do? Let the Holy Spirit tell you. We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism. So what does baptism do? Baptism makes you a part of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. And yet the Baptist church and most, well, all of Reformationism, as far as I am aware, dismiss baptism as being just a a post-salvation trophy moment. It's not the moment that you die, are buried, and rise again. It's just a post-salvation. It, it's just kind of non-significant. In order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. Watch where that newness of life phrase comes in, in this passage. We die to ourselves with Christ. We're buried with Christ. And then we rise to a new life with Christ. It's interesting that the new life does not come until after baptism. In spite of what the Baptist church and other reformers want to teach you, baptism is marked by the Holy Spirit as the moment that you receive your new life. It's not some post-salvation trophy moment. It is the very moment that you are entering into Christ himself. Right here. Reformers cannot teach this because it would imply, imply that our act of obedience contributes to our salvation. <clears throat> That's why they struggle with the book of James so much. 
faith and works? No, it's faith only, right? How many times have you heard that? It's faith only. And then James comes along, the, the brother of Jesus, and he says, no, faith by itself is dead. So you got to have works. The two have to come together. And so I have this faith, this conviction of the heart, this trust in Jesus that is expressed through the obedience of being buried with Jesus. And in the process, the two come together and there's a union and you've got living faith, not dead faith, because up until baptism, the obedience moment, faith is dead. It's just a value that you suggest you have, but you've you've given no no evidence of obedience. And so baptism becomes that evidence of obedience. And as James would say, faith and works bring you to a completion of the process. So that's Romans 6, but what about this one? In Colossians chapter 2, we find that uh, the circumcision of the heart, where the sin of the fleshly nature is actually removed from us. Notice it says that in him, that is Jesus, also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. In other words, Jesus himself performs the operation. Jesus circumcises. He cuts away the fleshly sinful nature and he saves your soul. He purifies you. When does this happen? Verse 12. Having been buried with him in baptism. Now, reformers can't teach that because if they do, it would imply that baptism is more than an outward sign of an earlier salvation. They want you to believe that your salvation comes without circumcision. It comes out, it comes without the hands of Jesus, evidently, operating on you in baptism. Because remember, you're saved, then you get baptized. Not according to scripture. According to scripture, you meet Jesus in the water, and it's in the water that Jesus himself with his own hands circumcises you and takes away the sinful part of your life. But reformers can't teach that. Because if they do, then it completely blows out of the water the, the perverse doctrines of the Baptist Church and other Reform Reformation, uh, the Presbyterians, etc. It completely blows out of, out of the water their, their idea that baptism is just a non-needed, non non-essential part of the, of the... It's just kind of a show. And then there's this one. In Galatians 3 and 27, for as many of you as were baptized into Christ, have put on Christ. Now, you should have already known that one because of Romans 6, 3, and 4, the into Christ part. But here, Paul's going to go even further. You're baptized into Christ, and you put on Christ. It's a little redundant, but it's there because of so many rock-headed people, such as we have within the Reformation movement, who want to do anything except accept what Jesus, the Holy Spirit, has put forth with regards to the purpose of baptism. Baptism puts you into Christ. That's where you clothe yourself with the Savior. But reformers can't teach that because it, if they did, it would imply that a person who isn't baptized isn't clothed with Christ. And then you hear them scream in the background, but what about the thief on the cross? It's their chief, and they have been trained to do this by false teachers who have the heart of the devil working within them. They have been trained to make this excuse. But what about the thief on the cross? By the way, you can't prove that the thief on the cross was not baptized. 
if you go through and you read the number of people that are baptized by John, the number of people who are baptized by Jesus, entire cities were coming out to be baptized. <laughs> it's very possible that the thief on the cross had been baptized, okay? But I don't really want us to get off on that point so much as to understand these two points. You need to recognize that this lame excuse that has damned the souls of many, this lame excuse doesn't hold water because, number one, this thief on the cross did not live during the church age. He died before the church age, Pentecost, Acts 2, ever began. And number two, he died long before Matthew chapter 28, where what we're studying here with the Great Commission, baptizing them, go make disciples, baptize. He died long before Matthew 28 was given. And so we need to recognize and understand that there, just as there was a transition in the process of animal sacrifices, etc., there becomes a transition in the process of salvation. Jesus, post-cross, has now become the Lamb of God that was slain for the sins of the world. And so once Pentecost comes, Acts chapter 2, 40 days after Jesus was on the cross, we're going to see, or 50 days after Jesus was on the cross, we're going to see 10 days after Jesus ascends back to the Father, we're going to see Acts chapter 2 where Peter gives this tremendous sermon in which he places a much more, there's a much greater intensity on the significance of baptism. Up to this point, Baptism has been a transitional period that uh, a proselyte would go through to transition from being a Gentile into a Jew. It was very significant, but not nearly as significant as what Peter's going to say in Acts chapter 2, because at that point, Peter is going to acknowledge that no longer does a proselyte have to become a Jew to become a Christian. That, that's not necessary. We find that established in Acts chapter 10. Actually, what happens in baptism, according to the words of Peter himself, is that in baptism, look at verse 38, in baptism we receive the remission of sins and the gift of the Holy Spirit. That happens in baptism. The thief on the cross did not have access to that time frame, that, that information. He died long before that sermon was ever preached. And so stop giving the lame excuse doing what you can to circumvent the commands of God, doing whatever you can to, to avoid what God says so that your little brain can be honored in what you come up with. Stop regurgitating the blasphemous claims of the Baptist church, the, the, uh, the, the, church, the churches of, of the Reformation movement of a variety, the Methodist church, uh, the Presbyterian church. Stop, stop regurgitating the blasphemous claims of, well, what about the thief on the cross? The thief on the cross died before the church age began. And because of that, and the fact that he is hanging there with Jesus himself, Jesus said to him, today you'll be with me in paradise, and Jesus could do that, because Jesus is Jesus. But when Jesus later on commands in Matthew 28, teach them to be or baptizing disciples, then his words are there, and that has to be, that's what he has said, and he, he doesn't lie. He doesn't go back on his words. And so after Matthew chapter 28, and those words are presented, and certainly after Acts chapter 2, when those words are implemented, that's when baptism for the forgiveness of sins takes place. 
But lastly, I want you to see 1 Peter 3 and 21. This is a really tough one for the Calvinists and the Reformation movement. Baptism, there's a word again, which corresponds to this. And he's been talking about Noah and the flood. He says, baptism now saves you. <laughs> That's hard to get around. That's what the Holy Spirit said. The Holy Spirit said baptism saves. Maybe you ought to just scrap all of your doctrines of men and just go with what God says. Baptism now saves you. Not as a removal of the dirt from the body. So baptism has nothing to do with cleansing the flesh. It's not about taking a physical bath. But as an appeal to God for a good conscience. Baptism is your appeal to God. Remember what Ananias will say to Saul who becomes Paul? And now why tarry yourself? Arise and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling upon the name of the Lord. Baptism is the process in which you call upon the name of the Lord. How are we, why are we doing that? Because in the process of baptism, Acts, Romans 6, 3, and 4, we're dying. I want to die to my selfishness, so I'm calling upon the name of the Lord. I want to bury the old man of sin, so I'm calling upon the name of the Lord, and I'm asking him, would you please, through your divine influence, would you give me a good conscience? Would you cleanse me? A good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And again, doesn't that tie in directly with what Paul says? Here you got Peter and Paul agreeing that the resurrection of Jesus Christ is significant to baptism because it's in baptism that we rise to walk in newness of life, Romans 6, verse 4. But reformers can't teach this because if they do, it will imply that baptism saves by being our appeal for a good conscience. And that would suggest that you and I play a part in the acceptance of salvation. Hear me. I cannot save myself. Stop using that excuse. I'm not what I'm preaching. You can't save yourself, but you can accept salvation. I am forever disgusted by the individuals who will talk about being, you are enslaved by sin. Therefore, you have no free will. What kind of ridiculous conclusion is that? Even a slave can desire something better. Even a slave can accept when a savior comes through and takes him out of his chains. Just because you're a slave doesn't mean you lose your free will. Reformers can't teach that baptism saves because if they do, they would be teaching what Jesus teaches. And that would undermine the doctrines of men. I want to conclude with this, and it's a, it's a little bit wordy, but I've spent a lot of time praying and thinking about this paragraph, and I think that it's worth screenshotting, and you take it home, maul over it, pray over it yourself. Instead of teaching the biblical view of baptism, reformers teach that baptism is a non-urgent, optional, post-salvation trophy moment. You see how they have completely undermined the urgency of evangelism, and thus they have elevated humanitarianism over evangelism. You watch them as they go off on their mission trips. Their mission trips are 98% digging a well, building a building, feeding the hungry, whatever. all of which is good stuff. But if you never get to the eternal values of a soul, all you have done is given them another day of comfort on the earth. Back to my quote here. By joining humanitarianism with a non-judgmental, self-defined sinner's prayer. Notice how I said that, non-judgmental, because I've been in audiences, and perhaps you have this too, you have too, where the, the, the preacher at the front, he'll, he'll say, okay, I want everybody to bow your head. Now, who, who in the audience wants to be saved? 
Just raise your hand. Nobody else is going to see because you got your, your head bowed. You see the non-judgmental side of that? Self-defined sinner's prayer. And the reason I, I say self-defined is because you can't find the sinner's prayer in Scripture. <laughs> they're, they're, and so it's got to be defined by men. And, and it doesn't matter who, who the guy is. He's going to have his own twist on what the sinner's prayer sounds like because they concocted it. They literally made it up. It's the self-defined sinner's prayer. Their superficial approach to evangelism, which I've just described, offers a non-offensive tolerance. And sound like our culture today, non-offensive tolerance, which is completely left open to personal interpretation. I think that's a pretty good definition of the blasphemous approach that the Reformation movement takes to what they would call evangelism, which really is little more than just the pursuit of whatever mankind wants and will keep them comfortable in the interim. The urgency of evangelism has been undermined by the Reformation movement. That's why restoration is so very important. Well, here are the five questions we attempted to cover during our time together. I think we did a pretty good job. I am so thankful that uh, you have been along for the ride. This has been an interesting... It came right on the heels of our discussion of Catholicism, which was by design. But uh, as we see what's transpiring here, you can be, you can see the apostasy, can you not, within Christianity? You can see how we have gone off the deep end in conveniences and, and, and things that make us feel good, patting our little bottoms with the pews and having our big edifices that sit empty for the majority of the week and all this stuff that is very human, humanitarian in nature. When Jesus, the very simple Jesus, didn't have a place to lay his head, the very simple Jesus was all about people, was all about individuals coming to know his Father. We got to get back to that. You know what I'm saying? We got to get back to that. Thank you for being here. I love you. This is Sonny Child saying, Be there. Matthew 16, 26.